My, my, my goodness. I have always disliked Category 2 fetal heart rate classification. I mean, what the heck do we do with that? Category 1, everybody gets, everyone's happy, we move on, nothing to see here, it's all good. Category three, we know what to do with. That gets everybody's little anal sphincter very tight, and it should. But what the heck do we do with category two? I mean, even in the original wording, it says, well, it's not really clear if this is linked to any kind of long-term morbidity, but doesn't really fit anywhere else. And, of course, the majority of intrapartum fetal heart rate tracings would be, obviously, category two. <laughs> And so now there's new data that really does show the limitations of this Category 2 box. Remember that it was back in July of 2009 with Practice Bulletin number 106, where ACOG first proposed and introduced to us all the three-tier fetal heart rate system. And then just one year later, in November of 2010, came the follow-up to this, which is management of some of these abnormalities. Now, there's been other publications that have built on that, but it really goes back to 2009 with ACOG's practice bulletin number 106 with then its follow-up practice bulletin, which was in 2010. But from 2010 to 2023, there's been a lot of other publications out there that are now calling us back to a publication all the way before the ACOG three-tier system was even a thing. Yep, this goes back to 2007 with a five-tier FHT classification. We're going to talk about it. But the whole reason that we are even discussing this is because of a brand new systematic review and meta-analysis from the Gray Journal. That's the American Journal of Obstetrics and Gynecology. Not the pink journal, which is the Gray Journal's sister journal. <laughs> <laughs> That's the American Journal of OBGYN MFM, but the regular old gray journal, all right? And oddly enough, you guessed it, one of the authors in this systematic review and meta-analysis is Vincenzo Beriella. We just talked about him recently when we talked about uh, our, our last issue with vaginal progesterone. See, this is why I just, I'm so fascinated by these great researchers, great physicians really trying to move the needle. And it's not just him. I mean, Dr. Blackwell is on here. Um, uh, um, Hector Mendez Figueroa is on here. And these have great ties to my home state in Texas because some of these authors come from UT uh, McGovern in Houston and UT Dell in Austin, all right? So it, it's notice it's the same folks. If you do a lot of research or in academia, uh, then you know these names and you get to meet these people both in conferences. Uh, they're on a variety of online meetings. And I'm telling you, what a great group of folks. But this systematic review and meta analysis is exactly what we're talking about here, all right? Because the title is The Three-Tiered Fetal Heart Rate Interpretation System and Adverse Neonatal and Maternal Outcomes, a Systematic Review and Meta-Analysis. Now, before you think, well, wait a minute, this thing came out in 2010. It's been 13 years. Are you telling me this is the first systematic review and meta-analysis? Uh, yeah, actually, yeah. There's been other independent studies at single centers or two centers, but really, this is the first one that tried to look at all of the data since that 2010 three-tier system came out uh, to see what it found. And when we were going to talk about it, and it sounds great, right? This is a good thing. 
But then when you figure out how much studies you actually started with and how much you actually include in the meta-analysis, you're like, wow, that's a lot of cases that were excluded. We're going to talk about it in this episode. And we're going to make the point to really try to go back at some point to a five-tier system. And I say go back because remember, that actually predates ACOG's three-tier system that came out in 2010. The five-tier was proposed in 2007. We're going to talk about it. But most importantly, I'm going to give you some clinical management advice of really what we should do with a Category 2 tracing uh, and, and give us some timelines to keep the patients and the babies safe. All right. So our highlight for this episode, our main piece of discussion is this new systematic review and meta-analysis from the Gray Journal. The first listed author is Zulo, uh, and we're going to cover that right now. Just trying to keep everyone up to date on evidence-based practice because medicine moves real fast. This is Clinical Pearls. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Here's a nice little bit of trivia in case somebody ever asks you or you can ask your medical student, your resident, and see what they say. See if they get it right, okay? And it's this. What is the most common obstetrical procedure in the United States? Uh, actually, the most common obstetrical procedure in the world, right? I bet you nine out of ten times they're going to say the wrong thing. Because the thing that comes to your mind easily is what? C-section, right? No, no, no. Because not every pregnant patient gets a C-section, but almost darn near every pregnant patient in labor and delivery gets electronic fetal monitoring. So that's the answer. Electronic fetal monitoring is the most common OB procedure in the U.S. and globally. Now, C-section is up there, but C-section is the most common surgical intervention in obstetrics, all right, or the most common surgery in the world, period, is a C-section, but the most common obstetrical procedure is electronic fetal monitoring. And despite our deep reliance on that darn machine, it still has these big issues, these big uh, obstacles that are marked by inter and intra-observer variability. And, and I love that these authors in the systematic review put that in there, and it's not just their words. I mean, we know this, right, that we're stuck with this necessary evil. And I say that, you know, meaning nothing bad about it, but what is it absolutely known to do? And that's increase interventions. What is it absolutely known not to do? And that's decrease cerebral palsy, <laughs> which was the original idea, right? When this thing first came out, like, oh, cerebral palsy rate's going to go down. Well, now fetal deaths went down with electronic fetal monitoring, intrapartum fetal deaths, but really cerebral palsy, they did fall a little bit, but they kind of natured. Why? Because intrapartum CP is only a fraction, a very small percentage of cases compared to all the other cases of cerebral palsy that likely have an antepartum hit that predates labor and delivery. All right, so it was back in November of 2010 when ACOG released practice bulletin number 116. Oh, and if you think, oh, this is going away, 
or, you know, this is definitely not going to be reaffirmed. No, it was just reaffirmed in 2021. Okay, so it it's not, doesn't seem to be going anywhere. Uh, and just FYI, I mean, Dr. Blackwell was one of the contributors, one of the authors of this practice bulletin, who is the same author in this systematic review and meta-analysis, right? So these are these experts. I mean, these are the people who they're not just trying to throw things out uh, and make waves. I mean, the, the reason that they contribute in these themes is because this is what they're experts in. So this practice bulletin number 116, which was back in November of 2010, uh, also has some of the same uh, authorship in this new systematic review and meta-analysis that just came out this month, October 2023, all right? So our focus, of course, is is category two, which oddly enough, as we mentioned in the intro, unfortunately, the majority of <laughs> intrapart and fetal heart rate tracings uh, end up being, being category two. And, and a lot of the guidance in what to do with that, what do we do with this category two, it's back in that original uh, 2010 practice bulletin. And we're going to review that here as clinical application because there's really two things here uh, that will tell us, do we are we safe to continue labor or do we need to, to plan an exit route? All right. Well, let me just say it now. <laughs> the two main factors for category two to assess are the presence of accelerations. Now, remember, accelerations are not needed for category one, right? It's good to have. It's plus or minus A cells. But for category two, the presence of accelerations in the fetal heart rate tracing or moderate fetal heart rate variability, both of those are reassuring. Okay, so let's just say right there, those are the two things to look for with a category two tracing, but others have added to that and have added time requirements um, of how long to watch that, which we're going to get into in a minute. Okay, and one of the issues here, as we discuss in the intro, is that category two is 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 a huge category. So if you're ever asked, for example, on the on on the oral boards or just in, in clinical practice, how do you manage category two? The answer is, well, what, what kind of category two are we talking about? I mean, there's a lot there. Is it episodic variables that are minor? Are we talking about deep, recurrent, more than 50% of uh, that are variable decelerations? I'm, I'm kind of worried about that. So category two is a big box. The first thing I'm going to do is assess what's going on. That's the first answer. Uh, I'm going to put her off to change her side. Uh, I'm going to assess for a cord prolapse. I'm going to look at her cervical status. I'm going to look at her labor progress. Uh, if she has tachycystole, I'm going to address that. But but what exactly is the, the, the issue here, the element that's making it a category two? Because there's a lot of things that could be going on. And then based on that, I will decide if it's a 30-minute that I'm comfortable with or if I can proceed uh, to continue uh, with labor for about an hour or so, okay? So you see, that's rather than going, oh, I would just put her on her side and give her IV fluid bolus, which is not the wrong thing to say. But the deeper thought is, okay, category two, huge box, a lot of things in there. What makes it category two? And this is why people are proposing the five-tier system, which goes back to 2007. And we'll talk about that in a minute. So breaking up just that one category into three different categories. Because don't you think, right, that there should be like a two minor, a two moderate, and a two more concerning before it gets to three. Does that make sense, right? So rather than going one, two, and three, is two really should be three little boxes. The one that's closest to category one is like category two, meh, you know, not so bad, a little concerned, but not too bad. Category two, moderate, like, oof, now I'm a little bit more concerned. Category three, uh, you know, a little bit more severe is the one that's bordering now category three designation. Does that make sense? Uh, and one of the things that we do to assess response as we're watching a category two strip 
uh, is to determine are there A cells present, which is a sign of, of reassurance, uh, a sign of oxygenation, uh, and is there still variability? Because those are, those are the, the, the main factors here that are good. The problem with Category 2, of course, even dating back to this 2010 practice bulletin, is that Category 2, it's not really been linked by itself to any adverse issues, but any Category 2 that stays Category 2 for a prolonged period of time can obviously decompensate into Category 3, which is what we don't want. Um, And even a prolonged Category 2 that doesn't resolve in and of itself could be bad. Because persistent, deep variables for more than an hour, for heaven's sakes, is going to dive into the child's metabolic reserves. Does that make sense, right? So if you ever asked, well, how long would you watch a Category 2? I can't answer that. Well, you can't answer that? No, because that question is jacked. (laughs) Why is it Category 2? If it's deep, repetitive with every contraction variable, I'm going to watch that like 20, 30 minutes and we're out if that long. Uh, if it's something much more subtle that makes it a Category 2, then we can do some interventions and have uh, a more leeway and a little bit more liberality uh, in our expectation of active labor. Does that make sense, all right? So all of these things come into play with Category 2, as we said in the intro. Everybody gets what to do with Category 1. Everyone's happy. It's rainbows, lollipops for the most part, even though some of those uh, uh, Category 1 strips uh, can have pre-existing neuronal injury from an antepartum hit. So you're like, well, how does, how does this baby who ends up with CP, how did it have this Category 1 tracing throughout labor? It was because intrapartum uh, hypoxic ischemic encephalopathy only accounts for a relatively small amount of cerebral palsy cases when the rest are due to antepartum insults. Does that make sense? So just because it's Category 1 doesn't rule out that the baby is going to have some potential neurological issue down the road from something that, that happened antepartum, not intrapartum, all right? But Category 3 is the one that, yes, in most of the studies, that has been linked to an increased risk uh, and odds ratio of fetal acidemia. So that one demands attention. All right, so let's see. We just talked about the 2010 practice bulletin from the college. Uh, which was the introduction to the three-tier system. And we needed this, right? Because there was so many weird stuff out there that people were documenting and calling things. So at least this gave us a standardized nomenclature. And by the way, I'm not throwing this under the bus at all. I just think Category 2 gives most clinicians, most uh, CNMs, most PAs, MPs, uh, OBGYNs, whatever, uh, this angst in labor and delivery because they're like, well, yeah, what do I do with that? And again, I I am going to give you some clinical application here that's evidence-based as we progress. But I do want to bring our attention back to something that predates this this three-tier system, which was the five-tier system that was originally proposed by Julian Parr et al., right? And this was also in the Gray Journal, oddly enough. This was under the section obstetrics, obviously. And the title was A Framework for Standardized Management of Intrapartum Fetal Heart Rate Patterns. Remember, this goes all the way back to July 2007. So this is, so let's get our mind right, okay, now as we walk down this timeline. ACOG releases a three-tier system in 2010. We're like, okay, we've got a a formal way of of looking at this. But this was before that. And I kind of wish we kind of stuck with this one because it it did away with this big box of Category 2, breaking those up into three. 
All right. So this publication under clinical opinion by Julian Parr uh, put this five-tier system and it was also uh, very nice because it was color-coded, right? So they had these color-coded risks of these categories. I love what these authors uh, stated here, how they described this color-coded system. I mean, so brilliant, right? So you're like, oh, what is this color-coded? Well, as you think, I mean, red is like, oh my gosh, warning, warning, right? Then you got the green, which is okay, and the yellow. Um, but here's how they describe it in this manuscript. Quote, we made use of the color-coding of the Homeland Security Advisory System for the risk of a terrorist attack by categorizing the risk from green being low risk to red being a severe risk, end quote. Is that great or what? So the original five-tier FHT system was color-coded. That, by the way, is also an app, um, which is super helpful because it's, again, one is not a problem, three is not a problem. It's two. You're like, oh, I don't know. How long do I watch that? Is it 20 minutes? Is it an hour? Come on, guys. You all with me? Because I know that happens to me. I'm like, oh, how long do I keep watching this thing? And remember, I am going to give some clinical guidance as we progress and get towards the end here. But I thought that was so interesting. Nothing like taking Homeland Security uh, information and then making it part of a protocol in L&D. I love this. Fascinating. And again, this was three years before ACOG's three-tier system. So if your question is, because mine was back then, uh, well, man, if this is much more... Uh, you know, color-coded friendly, we know what to do with colors, uh, we get the five tiers. Why didn't ACOG do this? Well, to be honest, there's a variety of reasons, but the easiest reason, the simplest, is the more complicated things are, the more we have an opportunity to mess things up. Now, this was before, like, the iPhone app uh, and, you know, our, our understanding of, of intrauterine resuscitation, like, Oxygen does not help the baby uh, unless the mom is truly hypoxic. We know that now. But remember, 2010, there was still some kind of hokiness out there. So the idea was, man, if it's more complicated, we're going to potentially mess it up more. So why don't we just do a three category, throw everything into category two and just tell them, hey, just do something about it if it lands into this, looking out for persistent A cells and variability. Okay, so I get that. It's, it's that it's the KISS principle, right? Y'all get me, right? KISS, keep it simple. Just keep it simple. So while we kept it simple, it didn't really answer or deal with this problem of the big-ass category 2 box, hence why we're now looking at this as a new meta-analysis from October 2023. All right, we're going to leave 2007, but just to be clear, this wasn't like an RCT uh, this wasn't a, a cohort study. This was literally a, a proposed framework for looking at FHT patterns, as the title is, a framework for standardized management of intrapartum fetal heart rate patterns, all right? So it's their proposal. They're like, hey, let's take a look at the data. We know how babies end up uh, needing resuscitation or going to the NICU. We know what those tracings look like. So we're going to call that uh, a red box, okay? And we know which babies stay out of the NICU and do well and call it the green box. So this was literally taking historic data, uh, looking from guidelines from the Royal College, from the UK, uh, so a lot of international input, and then doing this construct, this grid of all possible heart rate patterns from normal to tachycardia, bradycardia, decelerations, uh, and, and then putting that data together. Now, how would that look in a box, right? So the, the, the five different colors were green, which is no acidemia, blue, which hey, seems to be still, you're, you're kind of getting out of the green zone, but still okay. Yellow, which was 
I guess would be the most compatible here with our traditional category two now. Orange, which is like, ooh, now now we're getting a little bit concerned here. We're on the on the edge of decompensation here for the child. And then red, which is now what we would consider category three. Does that make sense? So they took that category two box that we have now uh, and basically proposed making that blue, yellow, and orange. All right. So it's green, blue, yellow, orange, and red. That was back in July of 2007. So I mentioned that there was an app that you can download that uses this five-tier system from this author's, from this manuscript. And I just want to be very clear, I don't have any financial ties to it. I don't get any gibbies if you download it. I think it's like $6.99 or something in, in the Apple store, uh, $6.99. Again, I have no financial ties to that, nothing to disclose. I'm not trying to plug one of my products um, because it's not mine. But man, I should have come up with that. It's a great idea. But there is this color-coded uh, app that you kind of put your, you know, put the details in and it kind of boop, kicks out a result as a suggestion, all right? It's not a medical dis- diagnostic tool, but it helps you uh, for th- these, you know, a rather complicated cases and gives you some suggestions uh, on for interpretation and possible management, all right? Now, we're going to get into management in a minute because... This is the big issue, right? What do you do with a Category 2? And as I've already mentioned, it's, well, what makes it Category 2? And more importantly, how long has it been? That's the second thing. So what makes it Category 2? How long has it been in that uh, situation? And then number three, where is the patient on the labor curve? So Category 2... Uh, for 10 minutes when the patient is complete, complete plus three is a whole different picture, right, guys? Then if she has a category two and she is two centimeters getting induced, do you all see that? Because that's a prognostic factor that if you're having big issues on category two in the latent phase, that's not looking too good. <laughs> because, I mean, if the baby's got that fatigue, that uh, low reserve, when the, the race has just started, uh, then we got issues. So that's part of the management uh, decision-making tree, all right? So the three things to consider, and we'll get into this a little bit more down the road, is what makes it Category 2? Why is it? What's going on? Specifically, what, what are the abnormalities? Two, how long has it been? And then three, where is the patient on the labor curve? Going back to this five-tier system, if your thought is, well, there must be a reason that this never caught on. No, it didn't really catch on that much here, but it did in other parts of the world. I love that in 2010, the same year that ACOG puts out its three-tier recommendation, which, again, I'm guys, I'm not saying to, to get rid of that. I'm saying that there's gaps that this new publication from this month, October 2023, uh, is absolutely confirming uh, and others don't aren't so keen to it. Some people uh, across the globe use other systems. But in 2010, that same year that ACOG released their three-tier system, authors out of Japan, actually it's the Japanese Society of Obstetrics and Gynecology, published their stance on interpretation of the fetal heart rate system. And they published their findings in the Journal of Obstetrics and Gynecology Research. Of course, we'll, po- we'll post this reference on our list. But here's what they had to say, quote, The view of the Japan Society of Obstetrics and Gynecology is that this intermediate category of this three-tier classification, remember we're talking about category two, they go on to say, comprises highly heterogeneous patterns in terms of the risk of acidemia and of the evolutional risk of severe FHR patterns. Therefore, we have adopted the five-tier system and modified the color classifications of PAR et al. End quote. 
So you see, so this is nothing novel, right? So again, you've got 2007. They're like, we've got this five-tier system. Three years later in 2010, they're like, hey, this is – I'm talking out of the Japanese society. Uh, we realize that uh, America has these three-tier system. But the biggest category, category two, has a lot of gaps and it's super heterogeneous. So we're going to modify that five-tier system, change the colors a little bit, and then we're going to implement that. So just to say that the three-tier system is a very U.S. thing, uh, others recognize it. It's known all throughout the world, of course, but, but not everybody agrees with that. Okay, I don't want to get in trouble. I, I am not advocating to trash the three-tier system at all. The point of this episode is to highlight the new data, the new systematic review that says three-tier system has some gaps, guys. That's all. We all know it. We get that. And, and to give all of us some technical tips to how to interpret this thing and keep babies and patients safe, all right? That's the whole purpose. Um, so not throwing the three-tier system under the bus at all. But you all know category two sucks. It's, again, one, I'm good. Three, I'm good. I'm going to section you or get that kid out quickly through an operative vaginal delivery, forceps or vacuum, whatever, if you need help. But it's the two that you're like, damn, I'm stuck. So this is the purpose of this episode, all right? And yes, on various publications, the five-tier system has been compared to the three-tier system. One was just done three years ago in the journal Plus One uh, and found, uh, surprise, surprise, uh, the five-year system, the five-year system, the five-tier system uh, is, is more accurate and more relevant in, in predicting acidemia. Why? Because you take a big chunk of pie and make them into smaller bites. So it's easier to, to digest. It's easier to interpret. All right. And, and again, that, that was out of plus one. The title was Evaluation of Three-Tier and Five-Tier FHR Pattern Classifications Using Umbilical Blood, pH, and Base Excess at Delivery. It's not the only one. There's others. But anyway, I liked this one, and I'll include this in the reference list. All right, everyone, I think we've laid down the groundwork enough, I think. Uh, now let's get into this uh, new publication from October 2023, the one that we've been highlighting. This was actually presented uh, at SMFM at their last meeting, uh, which was back in February 2023. Right, So that was presented, went through a formal peer review process. Now it's in print and again, came out October of this month. October of this month. What the heck? You see, when you well, well, this is why you shouldn't record things when you're tired. We're gonna, this came out October of this month. Duh, this came out. What am I trying to say? This came out this month, 2023. There you go. My goodness. English is a second language. Sorry. All right. If you threw all of the OBGYN thought leaders into a bus and said, tell me about the fetal heart rate three-tier system, you would get this paper. How cool is that? I mean, I just, these guys are just so cool. Uh, I, I, look, I, I'm, I'm not a novice. Uh, I'm not uh, like a 18-year-old uh, fawning over some uh, concert eras thing. Y'all like that reference there? I'm probably going to get some Taylor Swift uh, message. <laughs> My point is, look, I'm an adult. I'm a grown man, all right? And so I'm not fawning over anybody, but I really do admire folks who, Man, just trying to move that needle in, in the field, whatever it is. For those that try to move the needle in cardiology, good for you. In nurse midwifery, good for you. In nursing, try to contribute, man. I mean, just try to leave the place better than you left it. Hence why we're trying to do this podcast. Um, that's what we're trying to do is so when I'm gone, one day I'll be gone. Um, you know, go, man, at least at least he, he really tried to move the needle, I, I guess. I mean, the messages that you guys send, that's why I say, guys. 
I'm serious. They're so encouraging. And I've said this before, to do a 20 to 40 minute episode, right? That's like three hours of data gathering, uh, maybe another hour to actually record it, maybe longer if I just totally go left um, and have to bring me back. So it takes a lot of time to do this. And and I mean, we do love it. I'm not, definitely not complaining. I love this. It's a lot of fun to me for me. I, I love putting things together. Uh, and I learned stuff. I'm like, ooh, cool. Meta-analysis, systematic review on the three-tier system. Let's see what that has to say. So I'm, I'm learning with everyone here on the, on, on the episode. Um, but yeah, it just takes a lot of time. Where exactly was I going with this? I have totally lost it. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. The, I, I admire these authorships. That's right. Okay. Having said that, the goal of this systematic review and meta-analysis, good Lord, the, the, the goal of the systematic review and meta-analysis was to see if this thing is legit. How about that? Let's just do this. Chop a synopsis here, all right? Was, is, is the, the category of one, two, and three, is that a way to predict what are we trying to do here? We're trying to predict fetal acidemia. That's what we're trying to do here, right? Or uh, not so much. So they took a look at cases that were 37 weeks and above. So it's not a fetal immaturity issue affecting the fetal heart rate tracing. It's 37 weeks and above. And they restricted this to the last 30 minutes to two hours before delivery. All right. So uh, the point is, whatever, whatever you come in, However you start the race is great, but you've heard that, right? It's not how you start the race, it's how you finish. Well, it's the exact same thing here. It's how you finish. What does a strip look like as you have delivery, whether that's section or vaginal, whatever? Uh, and does that portend, does that uh, prognose uh, your fetal acidotic state or not, right? I like it. And at some point, you just got to pick a time, and we're going to take a look at five hours ahead. That's too far, right? Uh, we're going to take a look at the last 30 minutes. That's too small. So from that range of 30 minutes to two hours, uh, because every labor is different, we're going to take a look at the strips and then take a look to see who actually, um, which strip actually looked like it was going to predict acidemia, all right? Now, this, again, systematic review, meta-analysis, not an individual trial. And look at the amount of work that that goes into this, all right? So... Uh, again, when I saw this headline, I'm like, ooh, systematic review. What are we talking about here? How many studies that we get? Yeah, it's three. Now, hold, that's three, like one, two, three. But but why? <laughs> so uh, I'm telling you, it, the amount of work it takes to do this, amazing. So they actually started out with a query of 671 articles found. 671. They were all reviewed, guys. You got to go through each one to see if you're going to include it or not. Of those over 600 articles, when they took away duplicates and ones that didn't really fit or had missing data, ended up with three. One from Italy and two from the U.S. That's it. Three met the inclusion criteria. Two studies were designed prospectively and one was retrospective. So... Remember I said in the intro, I'm like, yeah, you'd be surprised what you ended up with when they do all the exclusion. And that's that's one of the things uh, about trying to do a good meta-analysis, which you all know I love meta-analysis, is that, man, if you make it so tight, you just, by, on purpose, because you're trying to do that, you, you get rid of a lot of, the, lot of the data that you're trying to analyze. So yeah, over close to 650 articles was the start. Uh, I'm sorry, 670 articles, 671 to be exact. And they ended up with three. But the N in that, the number of subjects in that was close to 50,000. All right, it was 47,648. So it still was a good number. 
But but hold on, there's more to explain. Out of that, it is important to note that a single study uh, that contributed about 82% of the data actually didn't have any Category 3 data reported. All right, so of those three studies, uh, the, the numbers that came from one site that made up 82% of the study data uh, actually had some limitations. So take that for what it is. But still helpful because this is nothing new. It's not like, oh, we never knew this data before. That category two kind of sucks. <laughs> um, there, there you go, right? There's the answer. Um, but this is the, the largest meta-analysis that actually has gone through a lot of data and isn't just one center's uh, internal perspective. All right, so without getting into a lot of the data, I just want to give you the big highlights here, and it's stuff you've already uh, assumed you would find in this, right? Which is, yeah, hey, Category 3 does the worst. That's the easy. But but the difference was that when you compare 1, 2, and 3, yes, there's a progressive deterioration in pH. Yes, babies tended to do worse as you got to number 3. That is true. But the disappointing part was that the, the differences between one and two weren't that great, all right? You all get this, right? So one and two in terms of pH prediction, they're like, hey, they really weren't that all that much worse one compared to the other. But when you compare one and two as to three, there's a big leap there, all right? So that proves that, yeah, all right, category three does pretty good. That's not the question. But it shows you the, the, the lack of specificity here for category two because to be honest, the, the amount of sick babies in category two wasn't necessarily much different than category one. And you're like, whoa, whoa, wait a minute. What, what happened there? Well, it's because category two is so heterogeneous. That's what we just talked about is, are we talking about category two closest to one or the category two closer to three? Does that make sense? If you just kind of put it into a line, right? One is to the left, category three is to the right, and then we've got category two in the middle. Well, is it like 2A, which is closer to category 1, 2B in the middle, or or category 2C, closer to, to the category 3 read. Y'all get what I'm saying, right? This isn't hard to figure out. So let me just give you this surprising conclusion, one of the conclusions from this study. Quote, hypoxic ischemic encephalopathy. So let's stop there for a minute. That's the bad one, right? That's what we're trying to prevent. We're not just trying... The, the APGAR is one thing, the pH and the base excess is another thing, and those are important, but... Most babies born with a bad pH, unless it's like really terrible, uh, it's not enough to predict uh, hypoxic ischemic encephalopathy, right? We know that. And that goes all the way back to the uh, consensus opinion on on neonatal uh, encephalopathy and neurological outcomes from the college and AAP. We get that. But here's, again, let's go back to the quote. Quote, hypoxic ischemic encephalopathy occurred with similar frequency among those with Category 1 and those with Category 2 tracings. Now, when I say similar, here's what the numbers look like. I mean, it's either 0%, which was for Category 1, so that's good, versus 0.81% for Category 2. Now, you're like, well, those aren't the same. Well, they're not vastly different, all right? So remember, HIE had similar frequency between Category 1 and Category 2. Fine, let's stop there. Again, that's not to scare anybody like, oh my gosh, what, what, was, the percent, what was the percent in Category 1? Well, it was zero. <laughs> so the point is, is that Category 1 and Category 2 didn't do so well for HIE discrimination in, in prognosis, all right? But obviously, HIE was much more frequent in those with Category 3 tracings. That makes sense. So Category 3 performs very well. 
Category 1 performs very well. The take-home from this is that Category 2, not so good. Do you get that? This is the whole idea. That's why we're going to give you clinical implications here in a minute. As a guide, okay, as a guide, it's not my guide. No, no, no. This is actually an ACOG's practice bulletin from 2010, and others have, have expanded on that, and I'll give you those references in a minute. Um, but, but here's the point again, is that Category 3, again, does very well. 1 does fine, but, but 2 has some gaps. That's the take-home here, all right? Category 2 tracings tended to do a little bit better in terms of of predicting APGAR scores less than seven at five minutes. But, you know, APGAR scores by themselves are flawed. Remember, we have a, a whole episode on the problem with the APGAR score. But that's one of the other endpoints that they used here is pH less than 7.00 and APGAR scores less than seven at five minutes. And so even though HIE was no different, in those babies that had Category 2 tracings, they had a higher chance of having an APGAR score less than 7 at 5 minutes compared to Category 1. Uh, and those that had Category 3 obviously had an even higher chance. So once again, Category 3 does very well. Category 2 did better in prediction of APGAR score less than 7 at 5 minutes. But when you take a look at HIE, it didn't really uh, do anything there as an end result. Interesting, right? Now let's get into this whole issue about the pH. To regroup real quick, uh, all right, category two tends to predict APGAR score less than seven at five minutes, okay, uh, compared to category one, but HIE made no real difference between category one and two, fine. But the big issue, remember, APGAR can be subjective, the more objective is the core pH, right? Well, the incidence of umbilical artery pH less than 7.00 was similar between those with Category 1 and Category 2 tracings. So you're like, oh, what? Well, well how did that happen? Well, one is is Category 1 tracing. Maybe it could have been misread. I mean, who knows? But also remember that uh, Category 1 tracing is, is okay, but in the idea that nothing is perfect, there's a lot of reasons why babies can have altered transition at birth, resulting in a low pH, right? So that's the big kind of surprise is that the umbilical artery pH less than 7 was similar between those with Category 1 and Category 2 tracings. Now, when compared with Category 1 tracings, the incidence of umbilical artery pH less than 7 was obviously significantly more common among those with Category 3. Once again, no surprise, Category 3 seems to imply those babies are going to be sick. They're going to have a higher incidence of HIE. Potentially, they're going to have a higher frequency of of lower APGAR score, and they're going to have a higher chance of having a pH less than 7.00. ACOG told us that in 2010. That's not the question. But I hope you see what the point's being made here is that category two kind of kind of leaves us in, in, in a hole here. It doesn't really help separate which babies are going to have a true metabolic acidemia. Apgar score is one thing, but that's uh, that's variable in terms of intra-observer variability. And it didn't really seem to pick out the HIE episodes. Because we still want to cover some guidance here for clinical application. What, what was the final conclusion here? Let me read that verbatim from this systematic review and meta-analysis. Quote, although the incidence of APGAR score less than 7 at 5 minutes and umbilical artery pH less than 7 increased significantly with increasing fetal heart rate tracing category, about 98% of newborns with category 2 tracings did not have these adverse outcomes. 
The three-tier fetal heart rate tracing interpretation system provides an approximate but an imprecise measurement of neonatal prognosis, end quote. All right. That's when that first came out back in 2010, I read that category two and I'm like, well, that's pretty darn big. That's pretty heterogeneous. There's a lot of factors in there. So nothing new, but it's nice to have, once again, this systematic approach and a meta-analysis of three publications that weren't RCTs. Um, you know, just take it what it is. The, the limitations are there. Uh, and the fact that one site gave 82% of the data. B- but the, the finding, like I said, even though with those limitations, n- this shouldn't be a mind blower like, oh, my goodness, you're kidding me. Category two is not great. That, I've never heard of that. That's so surprising to me. I mean, wow. No, it's in the practice bulletin from 2010. It says we don't know what to do with this thing, but we got to stick it somewhere. Hence, the five-tier system is more <laughs> uh, attractive, right? So again, you do you, you do what your hospital says to do, but maybe when you go up and look for policy and procedure um, you know, revision, uh, something to work on, something to consider. Again, right now, ACOG does use a three-tier system, but the five-tier system is legit as an alternative. But once again, I have to be very clear, the current standard, the, 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 the traditional practice follows the three-tier. But because of this heterogeneity, why don't we get into now some potential management options to keep us and patients safe? Ooh, all right. For sake of time, we've got to speed this thing up here. So now let's do some clinical pearls in dealing with this category two fetal heart rate tracing, all right? Some some general principles here to keep mom safe, baby safe, and us out of, you know, murky, dangerous waters. How about that? So this is, of course, uh, nothing new that in general principles for intrauterine resuscitation have to do with IV fluid hydration for the mom to increase uh, uh, circulation through the uterine vessels to the uh, fetal placental unit to increase blood flow, obviously change of positions, stopping a utero uh, a toxic agent, so like Pitocin, uh, to make sure contractions can can soften and space out so that the baby can uh, have more time to reperfuse uh, through diastole, through uterine relaxation. And of course, it has to be said, remember that giving the mom O2 for D-cells is not a thing, right? So we've covered that many times in the past uh, episodes where maternal oxygen for fetal resuscitation, not only does it not help, but potentially, especially if you're talking about preterm babies, could be harmful because you ink, you hype, you make them hyperbaric, uh, which can trigger free oxygen radicals. That's dangerous to neurons and the germinal matrix. So, yes, the whole idea of can it help? Well, it doesn't really help. And can it hurt? Yes, it can really hurt. So that doesn't fit our typical adage for 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 any kind of intervention, all right? So the only time that you give maternal oxygen to try to help recess is if the mom needs oxygen. <laughs> is the mom hypoxic? Um, is she hypoventilatory? Is she post-ictal? Um, does she have mag toxicity and, and is not ventilating well? So you do it to fix maternal oxygenation or just for symptomatic relief, let's say. Let's say she's pushing and, oh my goodness, she's just fatigued. She needs oxygen for her muscles and for her well-being. So nothing wrong with giving mom O2 at second stage for her benefit and comfort care, but it doesn't really do much if she has normal oxygenation for the child. So that's the intrauterine recess, okay? But I want to focus on, remember, our our topic here is what to do with the strip itself. How do you fix the strip and prevent it from deteriorating? Well, this goes back to a publication 
from, oddly enough, still in the gray journal. Isn't that weird how things just kind of topics find that same journal in the American Journal of OBGYN. Um, This is such a good journal. Uh, In 2013 by Stephen Clark. Again, another pillar of maternal fetal medicine. This was done with one of my old faculties, Dr. Gilstrap, Larry Gilstrap. And and again, it's a who's who of great authors uh, in this uh, in this review, including Dr. Hankins from Williams Obstetrics. Okay, so Stephen Clark is the first Clark is the first listed author from the Gray Journal, 2013, and the title, of course, very fitting, is quote Intrapartum Management of Category Two Fetal Heart Rate Tracings Towards Standardization of Care." End quote. And and it's a great review. We're going to knock this out here very very quickly and make it very easy as a general guiding principle. All right, so you're going to do this as the intrauterine resuscitation methods that we've just covered are being done as well, all right? Like putting it on her side, decreasing Pitocin if that's, if that's an issue, uh, IV uh, uh, fluid bolus, and of course, checking mom's O2 sat, make sure that she's not hypoxic for some weird reason. All right, so the first thing to assess with a Category 2 strip, and we alluded to this earlier, is to check for two things. All right, I get that I'm Category 2. First step, the first, first thing to assess is how's the variability? And are there A-cells? Because even though A-cells is not required for Category 1, A-cells in Category 2 is is a sign of reassurance. Okay, so it's, at least you can take a deep breath and go, okay, at least we got that. That's the first pass. So if you do have moderate variability and A-cells are present, then you assess the kind of, of, of D-cells that are going on, right? And what I mean by kind is, are, are they deep variables and or what's their nature? Are they episodic and isolated or are they recurrent? So now let's get into this, all right? So let's assume that there is moderate variability and A-cells are present. So we're going to do this in, in two forks, so the right hand and the left hand, right? On the left-hand side, for example, let's say with moderate variability and A-cells present, there are some pretty significant D-cells with more than 50% of the contractions for one hour, and they have not responded to these conservative methods like IV bolus and decreasing the Pitocin and position changes, all right? So step one, is there variability in A cells? Yes. All right, Uh, how are the D cells? Well, they're pretty significant, and they're more than 50% of the contractions, and it's been an hour. All right, so if that's the case, and if you're in the latent phase, uh, it's not going to make it, brother. I mean, you're like, it's just, we, <laughs> wow. If we're having significant D cells with greater than 50% of the contractions for an hour and you're in the latent phase, that's a section. Okay. So latent phase with that, you got you to gotta go to a vaginal bypass surgery, aka C-section. If you're in the active phase, then the first thing to do is go, hey, is she blasting through labor here? I mean, did she go from six centimeters to nine in an hour? Okay, which is allows for a little bit of, of, of fetal uh, stress and and transition. If she's making adequate labor change, you may you you can observe that even though it's been uh, going on for an hour. If she's not going through a, a quick or effective labor, then you're like I'm out. Okay, so we talked about latent phase. That's a section. Active phase depends on where she is in labor and is she progressing adequately. Now, if she's at second stage, so let's take all of those things into account, all right? Same thing. She's got moderate variability, A cells are present, and she's got those significant D cells that are at least uh, or more than 50% of the contractions for at least, for greater than an hour. 
and she's at second stage. If she's at second stage making process, bringing the baby down, then then help that ideally with with maybe an uh, operative vaginal birth to speed the process, uh, or if she's making process uh, progress by herself but not high enough you know, where you feel comfortable with an operative vaginal delivery, you can still observe that. But if she's not making progress in the second stage, guys, the big rule here is not making progress with this kind of strip, then be done either with a C-section or definitely intervene uh, with some kind of operative vaginal delivery. Everybody good? So remember, we're on the left fork here. So category two tracing, that's the first step. Then we take the next step, which is assess for moderate variability in A-cells. And we said, yes, okay, now that we have that, then we assess where they are in labor. Latent labor, that's a section. Active labor depends on labor progress. And the same thing for the second stage. Uh, is there good progress or not? But, but the idea here, guys, is that if there is moderate variability and A cells, then even though you can have significant D cells for greater than uh, 50% of the contractions, you can probably watch that for an hour. Okay, I know that makes some people uncomfortable, but as long as there's moderate variability in A cells, you've got an hour to wait to see what happens. All right, that's reassuring, isn't it? I told you that's a good clinical pearl because one of the first questions is how long is too long for category two D cells? And the answer is it's too heterogeneous. Let me break it down for you. I got category two, great. Are there A cells and is there moderate variability? Yes. All right, well then, if there's even though there's recurrent D cells for greater than 50%, I could watch that for an hour. However, now let's go to the right side of the fork. Okay, everybody with me? Everybody good? Bueller, Bueller, Bueller. Now let's go to the right side of the equation, the right side of the fork, which is we got category two, we get that. Now let's assess for moderate variability in A cells, and there isn't any. Okay, so remember, the left side of the fork was, yes, there is moderate variability in A cells. You can watch that for about an hour. But if it's category two and moderate variability or A cells are not present, then your time goes down to 30 minutes. Because remember that intrapartum variability is big. A cells are reassuring. So those are your two things. That's why that's the first step to assess. You get a call from the resident. I got lady in room 13, whatever. Oh, let's not do 13. 13's a freaky number. How about uh, number 12? <laughs> I've got a patient in, in LDR 12 and it's category two. All right. And then first thing is, well, what makes it category two? What do they look like? And then second is, um, okay, is there moderate variability in A cells? No. Okay. Now we, we're going to limit our time to this. I don't like the fact that there's absence of variability and absence of A cells. We're going to try to limit this to 30 minutes, okay? So give yourself 30 minutes for this with significant D cells that are at least or more than 50% of the contractions. Now, for the variability, there is one caveat here, right? There's always a caveat is, is there potentially a medication that was given that is messing up the variability? Remember, some medications like Stadol can give you that, that sinusoidal kind of fetal heart rate tracing. MAG can affect variability. So be aware, have we given her anything here that potentially could, could mimic uh, a, a loss of variability here? Okay, but let's assume that that's not the case. So moderate variability is absent. A cells are absent. We're going to limit that duration to 30 minutes. So if if that's the case and it's been more than 30 minutes and the variability in A cells are still not there, then it's time to be out. All right. So C-section or operative vaginal delivery based on where the patient is in the process of labor. 
However, if that's not the case, if there's not significant D cells that are uh, at least 50% of the contractions, in other words, they're more sporadic, they're more isolated, then you can observe that for one hour. So, so y'all get where we're going here? So it's either 30 minutes to an hour. Automatically, can go to an hour if moderate variability in A cells are, are, are present at, this, at the get-go. But even if they're not, if the contractions uh, are, are spurring off D cells that are less than 50% uh, uh, in frequency, if they are more isolated, then observe that for an hour. You've got some time. And at that hour mark... If it is still a person, if they're still episodic, then you can dip into the metabolic stores, uh, and that would be an indication uh, for C-section or, or operative vaginal delivery. Okay, so that's that's it. We did the right side of the fork and the left side of the fork with the divergent point that that center pivot that has the, both the right and the left fork is the presence or absence of moderate variability in A cells. And if that's a yes, that those are present, you have right off the bat, you had a little bit more time. You got about an hour, even if contractions, even if the D cells are greater than or equal to 50% of the contractions. And then you can assess based on that. But if variability in A cells are absent, limit yourself to that initial evaluation uh, to give it 30 minutes. And at that 30-minute mark, if you find that that the D cells are, in fact, every you know, every other contraction or more than 50%, then go ahead and proceed to operative delivery uh, at one type or another, either abdominal or operative vaginal, if that allows. But if it's not greater than 50% of the contractions, if they're more episodic, then you can wait for an hour. So what's the big clinical pearl here? You have either 30 minutes or an hour based on, once again, uh, on the type of D cells, where the patient is in labor, and then the big factor here that divides the fork is, is there moderate variability and A cells? Because both of those buys you time. All right. Whew, I felt like that covered a lot of info, all right? So again, the reference for this little algorithm, it's very nice, is Clark et al., uh, Category 2 FHT Management from the Gray Journal back in 2013. You know I'm going to post this on our reference list. Um, and so while you're you're waiting for this 30 minutes or the hour, remember, you're doing that intrauterine resuscitation, IV fluids, decrease the uh, uterotoxic agent, uh, do position changes, do ch- check her exam, make sure there's no big cord prolapse down there. Do something uh, to intervene. If she's got um, a hypotension from a recent epidural, uh, consider ephedrine as long as she's not hypertensive. So you've got these things in your back pocket, all right? But again, it all comes down to that central point. Is the baby, is this a real issue or not? And moderate variability in A-cells is is the first referee uh, in the game that lets you know you go either to the right or to the left. All right, podcast family, that brings us to a wrap. I hope you found this helpful. Again, it wasn't really to confuse you. I hope I didn't do that. That wasn't the goal at all. But really to show that you know, sometimes it's things that we take for granted. I mean, so instilled in medicine, like the three-tier system, and we're like, well, that's just what we do. And that's good. That's okay. It's good to have a standard nomenclature. Um, but sometimes it just doesn't work out well. <laughs> uh, again, category one is legit. Category three, got, got that. That's no question there. Category two is kind of a pain in the ass. And and this, the purpose of this episode, again, was to try to give some 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 evidence-based guidance on on how, on both on time-wise how long to stare at it, uh, uh, some interventions to do, and just give us some clinical pearls to keep patients and and babies, fetuses, fetai, fetuses, fetuses, uh, and ourselves out of danger.
All right. Well, that brings us to a wrap. As always, we're thankful for you. We're glad you're part of our podcast community, and we'll see you on another episode of Clinical Pearls.